Awesome. Good evening. How's everyone doing? Yeah, doing all right? That's good. I'm glad you're here at church tonight. I'm Pastor Jordan. I'm one of the pastors here at the Neighborhood Church. Hey, Paul. Good to see you. And uh, yeah, it's good to be back. Um, I was off for a little bit, little bit of a holiday there for a bit and uh, basically did nothing, which was fantastic. Uh, lots of rest. And uh, it's good to be here tonight to get back into our series, Small Book, Big Ideas from uh, kind of a journey through the book of First John. And so if you are uh, bring your Bible type or at home if you're that way, go to First John chapter 2. We're going to get into that in a few minutes. But it's fitting where we are in chapter 2 because Pastor John has just finished going through some excellent teaching on the end times and the return of Jesus as he talked about things to come. And this is what John, not pastor, but the writer, <laughs> is, is actually talking about in the passage that we're going to look at today. So we didn't necessarily plan this intentionally, but it kind of worked out that uh, we're still going to be looking at things when Jesus returns this evening. And so 1 John chapter 2, verse 26 says this, says, I am writing these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray. And so this is the theme that we're looking at. There are people within the church, coming into the church, who are trying to lead believers astray. And John has been addressing this, and he's going to continue to address this as we keep reading on. But before we get into that today, let me try to illustrate something that I think perhaps can hint a little bit as to why sometimes it's easy for us to get led astray or um, get you know, pulled back and forth by different kinds of ideas. Um, how many of you would say in our culture that we have an obsession with new? We want new things, right? Uh, let me illustrate from the world of video games. How many of you are gamers out here? Anyone? Okay, that's not, that's not me anymore. If I tried to play, you know, you guys would all destroy me, okay? But I remember growing up loving video games. The first system I ever had was the, was the Atari, and, uh, you know, Pac-Man was awesome. I loved it. And then came this system, the Nintendo. Um, I, I, I still love the game Super Mario Brothers and even Duck Hunt, right? Even though I don't have one of those guns anymore. But, uh, and then it just continued to improve. The Super Nintendo came out, which was that much better, that much more clever. Nintendo 64... And you can weigh in on that, whether that was good or not, right? Uh, PlayStation came around, Xbox came around, 360. I think I have a Wii sitting in a box somewhere in my basement, right? And that was another one of those systems that kind of eventually came out. But it was never enough to have the old system, was it? We always wanted something new. And so once the original Nintendo came out, for a lot of us, Pac-Man just lost its charm. Uh, you know, it just wasn't something that we were willing to go back to. People don't like the old, although they can make a comeback years later, I think, when we're feeling nostalgic, as, which is the reason why I own an original Nintendo that I got as a gift five years ago. But typically we want the new, we want the shiny, and if we're honest with ourselves, I have to ask us this, are we ever like that in the way that we approach our faith? Are we always searching for something new? Um, every year, we want, do we want to hear the new insight or the next new idea or discovery that perhaps we've convinced ourselves hasn't been said once in over 2,000 years of history? And we look for that thing that's going to revolutionize our faith and people travel and they sell out venues talking about these things and books are written and, you know, oftentimes very successfully sold. 
And, you know, promising that key ingredient that we've been missing. And time and time again, we usually see the hype with a lot of these things end up with, well, that didn't happen the way they said it was going to happen. Often enough, these ideas fall aside very quickly and are proven to be false, or they're mere winds of doctrine, as the Apostle Paul talks about in the scriptures, that just kind of blow through and don't really have an effect, and then they're gone. And some of the problem, I think, is in our own thoughts. I think there's, if we think there's got to be more to Christianity than what we find in the gospel then we're going to find ourselves in a spot where we go chasing after these new ideas and these new discoveries. And in the book of 1 John, there were a group of people, the Gnostics were active, and there were a group of teachers going around denying the Christ, um, trying to recreate different events of what would have happened in the gospel. This is what the church was facing when John wrote this letter. This is the kind of thinking that was hitting believers. There were teachers denying Christ. The scripture called them antichrists. And not just that, but they were changing the revelation of the gospel in which the church had received, adding and taking away from it. And John was warning the church, do not listen, don't follow such people. Stay away from that. Avoid that. And so the context in which we find ourselves today is that there's false teachers in the church, there's, an anti, there's antichrists in the church, those who deny that Jesus is the Messiah. And John was trying to warn the believers about what was happening. And more importantly, he was trying to, he was trying to tell them more about who lives in them. And so today, John is going to teach us about not wandering away from the faith by not only sticking to what we've known, but also sticking close to whom we've known. Following what we've known, but also who we have known. And so in the book of 1 John, chapter 2, verses 26 to 27, we read this. I am writing these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray. As for you, the anointing you receive from him remains in you, and you do not need anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things, and as that anointing is real, not counterfeit, just as it is taught you, remain in him. And so in these first two verses, we read about what John is calling an anointing that is in us. And so what is that anointing? That's the question I started thinking about when I was studying through this passage. What is he referring to when he talks about this anointing? Um, some scholars suggest it is hearing the gospel and believing and believing in Christ that in him we are taught. And so the anointing that lies within us is the fact that Christ lives in us. Some argued that that's what this anointing was. But many more, as I was studying, suggested that this anointing is actually the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives that we receive at salvation. You see, Jesus said in John chapter 16, he said these words. He said, but when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. And so you've been given the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit does illuminate the truth to you. 
And so that's encouraging to us that God has not left us alone to do this on our own, but the Holy Spirit is our comforter, our helper, the one who leads us into all truth is with us. That anointing is within you. And not only that, but as I was thinking about this and, and reading through some commentary on this portion, we are at such an advantage because not only do we have Christ in us, not only is the Holy Spirit leading us into truth, but we have the Word of God, right? We have the Scriptures, and they are available to us. And so we don't follow every new idea or new teaching that kind of blows through town or blows through online or social media, but we weigh everything by the scriptures. In Acts chapter 17, we read about a group of Christians who did this, and here's what it says about them. Now the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. Examining the scriptures is a good thing. You're not disobeying. You're not falling into rebellion if you question someone's teaching. But the scripture says that these Berean Jews were of more noble character because yes, they received the message with great earnestness, but they also went back to the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. And so what they were hearing from false teachers in these days was, I know what the apostles have told you. But what you really need to know about Jesus is something only I can teach you about Jesus. And I got it through this special revelation, and I got something greater for you. And John is saying concerning this teaching, no. Everything you need, you already have in the gospel that was taught to you. Amen? Everything you need, you already have in the gospel that was taught to you. And for us today, as we practically look at this, everything we need for life and godliness is truly given to us. It's truly found in God's word. In 2 Peter, it is written like this. Um, His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called the nature corruption in the world caused by evil desires. And so... What John is communicating early on in this portion is that the gospel is enough. That God's word is sufficient for you. Abiding in him, remaining in him is where we need to be. And yet I think at times that just a statement like that is also so deep and practical for us today. It's not that you commit to Jesus once, but, but really you recommit to him every single day as you follow him. Jesus said it like this in Luke chapter 9. Then he, Jesus said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their crosses daily, and follow me. And that word daily just stands out to me because I think this is the heart of what John is getting at when he tells us to continue in Christ. You see, we cannot simply be people who settled for what happened 10 years ago or what God did in our life way back then. And I say this tonight because I think it's easy for us to fall into a pattern or routine of thinking when we can assume that our best days with God happened when we were younger, or they happened five years ago, or they happened at that camp that we went to, or that when we went on that missions trip, man, were we close to God at that point. Or that experience with those people, man, was God ever 
present there. And I think we could get into this unhealthy mindset where we're always looking back at what God has done, not recognizing that he has something right now for your present that's going to lead into your future. And if you're desiring the good old days, if that's how we're thinking, then you won't be ready to experience what God has for you today. But the scriptures tell us remain in him, continue in him, because God is wanting to do something in your life and through your life right here, right now. And here's the truth, and the truth is this, is that God doesn't have a plan for the past, but he has a plan for the future. Or maybe I could say it like this to you tonight. God doesn't have a plan for your past, but he has a plan for your future. Amen? Yeah, something to get excited about. I like it. <laughs> and don't get me wrong. Don't get me wrong. I'm going to leave a disclaimer here just so you don't misunderstand me, okay? God can use your past, okay? He can redeem it. He can use your story for his glory. That can happen, and he does that often. But his plan right now for you isn't what you experienced five years ago, whether that was good or bad, but his plan is for you in the present and, more importantly, in the future, okay? God doesn't have a plan for your past, but he does have a plan for the future. And verse 28 tells us that the way we go about this is that we continue in him, because when he appears, we're going to feel one of two things. It's going to be confidence, or it could be shame. And this confidence that we could feel, I want to throw this out there just so I don't get you on this works righteousness kind of train, okay? Is not of ourselves. <laughs> and it's not of our doing per se, but it's by abiding in Him. By remaining in Him. By continuing to walk with Him each and every day. Philippians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul says this. He says, therefore, my dear friends, as you've always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill His good purpose. Do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. And then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. You see, every single day we are given the choice between living in the past, staying in the present, or creating a future. And the great danger lies in that it's easy, that the easy path is really just to hold on to what you know, cling to what you have, and then you make the future just an extension of the past. Although your faith and life is grounded in the past, you must not be grounded by the past. Does that make sense? Although perhaps your faith and the stories of coming to Christ and the stories of the things God did in your life are in the past, you must not be grounded by that past. You, you've got a future. We got to continue in Him. Amen? We got to keep moving forward. And while tomorrow is coming, regardless of what you do, the future comes often because of what you do. Erm McManus, in his book Chasing Daylight, said this He said, The most spiritual thing you will do today is to choose. And whether you realize it or not, every choice you make has an effect on your future. In fact, the choices you make are the material from which the future is made. If our best futures can be known only in the mind of God, then how critical is it that we hear his voice? 
and heed his call. God is never calling us into the past. He's always calling us into the future. And as I was studying this week, I thought, man, this is a word, I think, for sometimes when we could become complacent or when we could feel like we check out for a while, that God, and we feel like, you know, the good things with God, you know, that happened five years ago, that can't happen again. Yes, it can. Yes, it can. Yes, he can use you like that again. And so do we like to think about the future or are we content to be more in the past? Is a question we have to ask ourselves. You see, preservation is tempting to us as humans <laughs> because there are things that we're proud of and that make us feel comfortable. And we like the good old days. And so preservation is tempting to us. But when you boil it down, preservation is really just based on the fear of loss. It's really what it is. And God is not finished with you, church. Anyone here, he has plans for you, your life, no matter how young you are today, no matter how old you are today, no matter what you've experienced, we are called collectively to continue in him and to abide in him. And if we're simply desiring the good old days, then we won't be ready to experience and work towards what God wants to do today and in the future. You know, I think of the story of the Transfiguration, where Jesus was up there with a couple disciples. This amazing spiritual experience happens, and the first thing Peter wants to do is put up three houses, right? You know, we should stay here. We should live in these moments. We should live in this precious moment, and a precious moment it was to be there and see the Transfiguration. But Jesus wasn't down with that idea. He's like, nah, we're not putting up houses. There's work to do. We gotta keep going. We gotta keep moving forward. And it's not even just our futures that are at stake here, but perhaps what we do today is just as important and more important for the future of someone else. And that's another thing that we have to keep in mind. Because the truth is, while the past may hold good or bad for each of us, God doesn't have a plan for the past, but he does have a plan for the future. God's plan right now isn't for your past, but it is for your future. And we need to understand this. As Christians, we are to have a forward disposition. Understanding that God desires to do something new, fresh, use you in a new way, even today, even tomorrow, like he did before. Because Christ, as we've spoken of over the last few weeks, is coming back for his church. Is coming back for his bride, as the scripture states. And so... Jesus, I think, tells a story that kind of illustrates the two things that you can feel at Jesus' return. Confidence and shame at his coming. And so he talks about this in Matthew chapter 25. And this is the parable known as the parable of the ten virgins. And I didn't put the scripture up on the screen for you today. Um, I'll just kind of tell us the story and read a couple verses for us just so we get the general gist of what he was talking about here. But he talked about how at that time the kingdom of heaven is going to be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, he said, and five of them were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps. The wise ones, however, took oil in jars along with their lamps. They, they are prepared for this moment. The bridegroom was a long time in coming, and what ended up happening was everyone got drowsy, and they just sort of fell asleep. And they probably weren't waiting for him to come. They probably weren't expecting it at that moment, so they just, they passed out. 
And then all the virgins woke up, it says, and trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise, give us some of your oil. Our lamps are going out. No, they replied, there may not be enough for both us and you. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourself. So the bridegroom has arrived. Five of them are ready to go in and meet. And five of them have to get out of there and go find some oil. And uh, as we continue in the story, it says, But while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Later, the others also came. Lord, Lord, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, truly, I tell you, I don't know you. And then Jesus said this. He said, therefore, keep watch because you do not know the day or the hour. And so there's a couple observations from that story that I want to leave us with today. The first one is that to enter the kingdom, one not only has to accept the invitation, but you must also prepare for it by bringing reserves. And maybe more important for us to be practically living out our faith and abiding in him daily is how we can apply this here. You see, it's one thing to wait for the, the bridegroom, but it's another thing to prepare for the bridegroom's coming. And this is supposed to be something that we're conscious and continually aware of. And while we wait for Christ to return, we need to be in preparation mode. We need to be in practical mode. You see, I thought about this before Pastor John started this series, and I think a lot of us can answer, well, we think about this a lot more now since he started preaching on it. But how many of us regularly think about the fact that Jesus is coming back? Don't answer out loud, okay? I did this once in a church, and uh, it was amazing how um, people answered. But is it something you think about every day? Is it something that comes to your mind maybe once a week? This is before he preached on it, okay? Um, is it something you think about maybe every few months? Maybe you think about it once a year. Maybe it's been five years since you've actually thought about the fact that Christ could come back. I, I took a survey of this once when I was preaching, and I, I appreciated the honesty of the crowd because many of them had confessed that it's not something that they're often preoccupied with. It's not something that they're often thinking about. And I think this story that Jesus tells is a warning to us against becoming idle and against becoming distracted. You see, when I talked on New Year's Day, I, made it, I, I, I mentioned something that I'd heard before, and it was that the thing that we're distracted by is never as important as what we get distracted from. And I think that's true in life. I think the things that we get distracted by are never as important as what they pull our time and attention from. And in this case, I think it's easy to become idle and distracted in the world that we live in, maybe not focusing on the fact that Jesus said he will return for his church. Amen? And we need to be focused on doing his work. We always need to be living ready daily. And, and, and five of them in this story were called foolish because they weren't prepared. They were caught off guard. They were surprised by this. Anyone ever been caught off guard before? Anyone ever been surprised by something? Isn't that the worst feeling ever? Like I tell you, you know, some of you uh, students might have gone into school one day and like, oh, we have a test today, what, right? I've been there, okay? And, and it, it's the worst feeling sometimes to be caught off guard. I'm the kind of person who likes to plan ahead so that I'm ready for things. And when I'm called into something that I'm surprised by, it, it, it catches me off guard, it's difficult, right? And it's the worst feeling to be unprepared for something. And I hate that feeling of, oh my goodness, I'm not ready for what's right in front of me. 
And the five who were caught off guard in this story are shocked and the door shuts and they can't get in. The second thing, the second observation that comes to me from this story is that when the time comes, there will be no time to borrow from others. But you need to make sure that you have prepared yourself. And that's a strong lesson that Jesus teaches here in this parable. When the time comes, when the arrival comes, there's no time to borrow from anyone, but you need to make sure that you've taken the responsibility to be prepared. At the return of Christ, we can't depend on others for our readiness, but each one of us needs a personal, active, can I say continual, relationship with Jesus ourselves. And I've said it like this before, you can't live off someone else's spiritual journey. You can't live off of someone else's intimacy with God. You can't piggyback off of someone else's acts of service. But each one of us is responsible to be continuing this life in him. Amen? And responsible for our own as God works through us by his spirit. And we can't claim association to uh, other believers or family. It's not going to be one of those moments where you can say, you know, well, my family did all this in the church, or, you know, I have this long history. We have this long history in the faith, or, you know, this is happening, or my mom prays so much, I swear she's God's cousin, right? Like, you can't really say things like that, right? It's not going to be something that's going to get you through, but each of us needs to have our own active relationship with Jesus. I think that's what John is teaching us tonight in this, these verses. And this is the grace that is offered to each one of us. Grace is unmerited favor. And you see, meeting Jesus and receiving the forgiveness of our sins really is grace. Amen? But not only just getting our sins forgiven, but also continuing in that relationship and the fact that God asks us and invites us to be a part of what he's doing in the world playing a role in the work that he's doing right now that is if anything in our lives that is grace that's unmerited favor that God has called us into this you see I, I, I read this verse a lot and I might wear it out but that's okay I'm going to keep reading it okay in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8 to 10, we read it like this, For it is by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. This is a gift of God, not by works that no one can boast. We understand that. For we are God's handiwork. Some translations say workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. And all of this, church, is an act of grace. The forgiveness of our sins, yes, and our works, but it's all because of the grace of Jesus. And we're not just saved for our own benefit, but we're saved so that we can go out and be his handiwork in the world. Created in him to do good things that he prepared in advance for us to always do. And I want to caution us, though, because we can get this idea of, of works righteousness. And so I, I, I put that verse in there because the Bible says that we're his handiwork and his workmanship. We're created in Christ Jesus to do good works. God prepared this in advance for us to do. We don't become righteous because of what we do. We, earn, we have righteousness because of what he did. Amen? And, and that's, that, that, he is our righteousness. And so the point is this, is that the Christian experience is not one single moment when you say a prayer, but that is simply your starting point. And it's a great, that's where you find yourself today. Amen. God's got amazing things ahead. I believe that. I believe that. 
but it's also a new way in which we're, we are new creations and we're now free to live in a new way each day that Jesus teaches us how to live. And so there's a responsibility on each of us to be prepared and to make sure that we don't take the coming of the king lightly. That he will come back. And that's what the parable of the ten virgins is teaching us. And in a similar way, 1 John chapter 2, I believe, is also teaching us a very similar lesson. And so be prepared. Remain or abide in him. Have that active living relationship with him. Paul said it like this in Philippians 3. He said, it's not that I have obtained all this, already obtained all this, or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet the taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. You see, Paul was talking about all of his accomplishments before he says this, but he talks about but what's really important is what we're doing today is what we're doing analogy from sports and competition. And so what is God calling us to? Maybe he's spoken to you. Maybe he's, maybe he's spoken to you a while ago and it's something that you're kind of mulling over in your heart. You see, verse 29 says this, if you know that he's righteous, you know that he who does what is right has been born of him. And we don't do what is right to become righteous, but we do what is right because we have been made righteous in him. And so here's my question for us tonight. Here's my take home, okay? Do you still wake up anticipating how God wants to use you today? Is that something you give thought to? Do you still ever wake up thinking, God, 24 hours here, how, how, how do you want to use me? Do you still pray and ask him for opportunities to love others? Do you still pray and ask him for opportunities in which you can share your faith and share the truth of what Jesus has done in your life with other people? Is this something that you're pursuing? I know a lot of us are open to it, but is it something that we're pursuing as we live for him? And I ask these questions with grace. But do you expect that he still has good works in store for you? Because forward into everything that God has for you. God's plan is not for your past, but his plan is for your future, church. And as we follow him and abide in him, we can have confidence that we are exactly where he wants us to be. Amen.